welcome to the Advance Your Art podcast, where we talk about the journey from artist to entrepreneur and everything in between. You've worked hard to hone your craft. Now take it to the next level with tips, techniques, strategies, and routines used by successful artists to grow their businesses and careers. Now, let's get started and have some fun with your host, Yuri Cataldo. Rachel, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Yuri. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for joining me today on your very busy Saturday. I appreciate that. No problem. So as with a lot of guests on this podcast, um, there are many things that you do and have done in your life. So I'm curious now, if somebody asks you the question of what it is that you do, how do you describe that? That is one of, I think, the most interesting questions, and I'll tell you why, because I never want to be that person who just answers with their day job, Mm -hmm. simply because my day job at this point in time is very uh, structured and stable and, you know, not the most inspiring thing I've done in my life. Sure. <laughs> um, so as, as a result of that, I like to answer with some of these amazing side projects that are totally all-consuming, mm-hmm. um, one of which is this new project that I've started uh, that is a kind of exciting merge between my former career, which I've just transitioned out of, and another passion uh, that I've had for a while, and those two things are a former career as a professional ballet dancer with Boston Ballet. Mm-hmm. And my food writing gig that yeah. I did for many, many years and still dabble in uh, mm. today. Well, great. Uh, yeah. So that's that's a very interesting mix just because on the surface you wouldn't think ballet dancer, food blogger in the same sentence um, just because of, well, you know – the. At least from my understanding of, of like what it's like to be a dancer, which is not – I don't have a great understanding, but at the time I spent at, at Juilliard, a lot of the dancers were constantly weighed and their bodies Ooh. were judged nonstop. So I am fascinated by the fact that you you know had both of these passions and have combined them both and made a career out of that. How do you – well, actually, before we jump into that, let's, let's, so let's start with the ballet part, and then we'll kind of weave back into that. So what initially planted the seed in your life that got you interested in ballet? So I started dancing, piddling around a studio um, when I was three. Okay. And it was my parents who put me in. Uh, we, I was born in the UK. We moved to Toronto when I was three and my mother and father put me into just dance classes. And I took dance classes in this tiny little studio in Toronto that was above a gas station, I think. Um, so it's like, yeah, like the tiniest dolly dinkle little school, but, and you know, we would do dances to how much is that doggy in the window? And, and I had like literally the best time. And around then, I think I also was put into gymnastics. Okay. And there was an interesting thing that happened there. There are two types of gymnastics. There's artistic gymnastics, which is with the flips mm-hmm. and beam and the bars. And then there's rhythmic gymnastics, which is with the ribbon and the hoop and the ball. Mm-hmm. And it just so happened that the gym club my parents took me to had both of those types of gymnastics. And I was put in the most common artistic gymnastics and they took one look at me. I'm very tall and long and they were like, she's just not going to make it here. (laughs) So you need to take her to the other side in quotes. (laughs) So already I'm like causing issues and being sent to the other side. And the other side happened to be rhythmic gymnastics, which was where I stayed and actually ended up competing on the Canadian national team uh, in, in that sport. And so, yeah, so I did, I, I continued dancing as well and eventually moved into a more professional training school at the National Valley of Canada. Mm-hmm. So I did both of those for 
uh, all of my formative years. Oh, great. And so when was it that you went from Canada to, to Boston and started getting involved in the Boston Ballet? Right. So when I was 18 or 17, rather, I was finishing up high school. Mm-hmm. And again, up until that point, I'd really been doing both uh, rhythmic and gymnastics um, and ballet, kind of toggling between the two. And in that last year of high school, I decided to really give rhythmic gymnastics a go. The career span for a dancer is short, but the career span for a rhythmic gymnast is even shorter. And so I figured that it was the time to see where, like how far I could take it. Mm-hmm. And so I spent that whole year focusing almost exclusively on rhythmic gymnastics and, you know, did very well. Um, my, the way things were happening in terms of the Olympics, my timing was a little off. The Canadian rhythmic gymnast at the time, Alexander Orlando, who went to the Olympics, was going to the Olympics that year and representing Canada. Mm-hmm. And so I would have had to stay on for an additional four years to be considered for a spot at the Olympics. And mm-hmm. uh, I just, that timeline for me was not going to work. I was happy with what I'd accomplished and I felt at the end of that year that it was time to now see if I could transition fully into ballet okay. as a profession, which, you know, full disclosure, I hadn't been ever one of those dancers growing up who was like, I'm going to be a prima ballerina one day. Like that just, oh, okay. me. yeah. Um, it was just something I did. Mm-hmm. And depending on what stage I was in my life, I was either very good at it or very frustrating to my teachers because I was lazy and not realizing my full potential or whatever. So, um, yeah. So, so when I was about to turn 18, I auditioned in New York and uh, Boston and a few other places that have good intermediary dance programs. And by that, I mean that you can graduate from high school and not go straight into a professional company, Mm -hmm. but have like full days of ballet training, which is what I needed because I was still such a rhythmic gymnast. Mm -hmm. It didn't really make sense to just jump right. I just didn't have that um, technique and strength yet. So I auditioned for a lot of these programs and I fell in love with the one in Boston, uh, the one at Boston Ballet. And they offered me a place in their training program, which is the top level of their school and very integrated with their professional company. And I think it just ended up being me in the right place at the right time because they were looking for tall dancers. And with my rhythmic gymnastics background, I brought something very unique to the table, very flexible. I could do a lot of extreme things in the contemporary world, mm-hmm. uh, contemporary ballet. And, and that was a way that some ballet was leaning at the time. So, so that's kind of when I transitioned into ballet. And that was in, I think 2006 that I first came to Boston. And then I spent two years in the training program and then was offered a contract as an apprentice mm-hmm. and spent two years as an apprentice and then was offered a full contract with the company and danced with them for an additional six years. Oh wow! Okay. Yeah. And then, and then, while you were dancing with them, you also then started getting involved in the food scene in, in Boston. Yes. So how did how did that happen? Because you, again, I don't really hear a lot about professional dancers also getting real involved in in the food scene. So how did how did you work that into it? Right. So this is also great. <laughs> It's so funny how these things do start. So I love writing. Mm -hmm. I always loved writing. It's been a form of expression for me. And once I graduated high school, I was doing my university uh, via distance education, but I didn't have any outlet for just creative writing. And I'd been hearing about these blogs. Everyone seems to be doing a blog these days. And just from my own, you know, I've all, I have always loved going out to eat and I could sense that something interesting was happening in the restaurant community in Boston. And I actually started working at a restaurant in the South End. Okay. And the restaurant was called Pops and it has since closed and is now has gone through many iterations. Um, but it was this great restaurant and I was the hostess and had the best time and I really fell in love with the food and I fell in love with the industry. And I thought it would be interesting because they had this amazing burger there. Mm-hmm. Amazing burger and I loved it so much. And I thought, what if I 
had a burger blog. And I was like, and I, every, cause the other thing was that at this time I was an apprentice at the Boston Ballet, so I was not getting paid very much money. Okay. And so when I would go to a restaurant, obviously the burger was always one of the cheapest items and the, the biggest, heftiest meal. So, mm-hmm. you know, you eat a half a burger and you're good and you, ha- you know, and you get leftovers and all this stuff. So I was like, well, let's be perfect, you know, be very like low, you know, very economical and, and I could just go to a different restaurant every week and have a burger and I have a burger blog and it'd be great. And I go online and there is a burger blog <laughs> like Boston. And I, so I was like, okay, so that's not going to work. But I was also thinking probably just as well because my arteries would have completely clogged. <laughs> so instead I kind of played around with that idea of being frugal mm-hmm. and started a blog and started as the frugal foodista. Oh. And the whole point of this blog was to navigate the restaurant scene on a budget. Okay. And so that's how I started. And the interesting thing was that it just so happened to be at a time when bloggers and kind of PR in general was really starting to create relationships with local writers. Mm-hmm. And the food scene in Boston is quite small. So once you know a few people, you get introduced to others. And next thing you know, you're being invited to all of these press dinners and these amazing meals. And I was part of a few blogging, food blogging networks that also provided opportunities. So so all of a sudden, my Frugal Foodista website was full of all these lavish meals <laughs> at some of the most expensive restaurants in the city mm-hmm. and a friend of mine was like you know i don't know if you can really call yourself the frugal foodista anymore <laughs> he was like it's very frugal for you yeah of course i wasn't paying for any of these <laughs> but he's like but anyone who's following you like will be broke within like a week so i was like fair point and the other thing that so the, it had been a year at this point maybe yeah about a year that i'd been running frugal foodista and the thing that mm-hmm. stuck with people was that dance food connection and so i figured it's probably a good idea if i transition this into anything to transition it to focus on that and so that's where foodista on point okay. came from and that's that was my label for the rest of most of my food writing uh career mm-hmm. and it was just great because kind of in in what you mentioned earlier it is this strange, almost contradictory energy between restaurants and food and that in, and, and ballet. But, you know, I've always felt the opposite. I think mm-hmm. dancers spend their, their whole day working out and expending energy. And, you know, dance, da- most dancers really love food. <laughs> really, you know, if you go to an event with dancers, yeah. just find the food table and that's where they'll be. <laughs> so, and many dancers won't even come to an event unless there's like food there. Oh, okay. Yeah. It's another thing. Yeah. Well, that's good to know. Yeah. So, so to me, it was always a very natural, natural pairing. Okay. I also liked being able to shed a little bit of a different perspective and show people that, you know, ballet dancers, are not all not eating mm-hmm. and not a healthy thing to be promoting for younger dancers either. Mm-hmm. Right. So I liked that I was able to at least bring a different image to that. Mm-hmm. So while you were with the ballet company, you also got involved in their, their uh, young professional program and mm-hmm. a couple, couple other things. Did how, so how did that happen as well? So how did you, I guess, expand beyond just just being a, um, you know, a certain type of dancer to also get involved in, in maybe more of the administrative type of work there? Yeah, I have always felt fascinated by the, the holistic view of an organization, and I was never quite comfortable with just having an identity in the studio and on stage. Mm-hmm. I wanted to be a lot more well-rounded than that. And I think also as a factor of my prominence in the food writing world, I was also very comfortable being a, a spokesperson more broadly for the ballet. Okay. 
And so that kind of led me into this young professional organization where as one of the dancers on the council, it was my job to promote the ballet and promote the art form and engage young professionals across the city. Mm-hmm. And it was something I was also very passionate about because it's so needed. It's, it's such a special gem in, in Boston, the greater Boston area. And we have so many young professionals who are coming here and kind of trying to figure out something to latch onto. And the ballet is unparalleled in what it can offer. Mm-hmm. You know, our artists are these dancers who are the same, who are peers of these young professionals. It's not a painting. Um, you know, so I've always really believed in the uniqueness of that and was very honored to help drive that message outwards and bring disparate groups in. It's just something that I've always really loved to do. Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, uh, so I, I go to the, the YMCA in Marblehead and it has one of the Boston Ballet training centers there. Totally. Yeah. Which is amazing because it's like there's, you know, the, the normal people who are like lifting weights and there's this beautiful pool there. And then there are all these young dancers who kind of come through every once in a while. And it's, it's, a, it makes for a very unique area. And the fact that just so many different types of people who are at this event and, uh, it's clearly very easy to see the, especially there, there's mostly young girls there who are in the ballet program and they're very easy to spot because a lot of them are in tutus. Um, but it's 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 really fun to see at the gym to see the, this parade of young kids in at, at the ballet. It's wonderful. Mm-hmm. That's a beautiful facility. Yeah. So when was it that you made the decision to stop being in in the Boston Ballet? So that was a very long winded decision that I usually say took about three years mm-hmm. um, when I actually left. And the reason for that was that I got very injured about three years before I retired. And it was an injury that was very, very challenging because it wasn't, oh, I broke this bone or I tore this ligament or strained. You know, it, it was it was this like nefarious. We, no one could figure out what it was in my it was ankle. And so that took about a year to sort of wrap our heads around a year in a surgery and a, a pretty difficult rehab experience. I'd been injured in the past and in general had recovered very quickly. Mm-hmm. And this one was not like that. This one took a lot longer for me to go through and come back again to a point where I could dance relatively pain-free in a way that I felt good about. Uh, the surgery gave me another year and a half of good dancing but it was always in the back of my mind and by by the last year of my career i went through a nutcracker season mm-hmm. and i just could not get on top of this pain in my ankle and this again was after the surgery so in my mind i was like i've already done everything i can to uh make make this problem better it just seems like the stress that I'm placing on it as a dancer is too much. Mm-hmm. And because I'd already done surgery and had spent so much time like rehabbing in a very like thoughtful, intentional way, I didn't think that it made sense to take another year and, you know, rehab it again, try more injections, more of this to then come back and again, be in a position where I felt like I couldn't push myself mm-hmm. in a way that made all of the other sacrifices worth it. Okay. And so once I got to that point, so that was really after this run of Nutcracker. And just for context, Nutcracker is one of the most grueling things dancers in America put themselves through, especially corps de ballet dancers, because you're doing your corps de ballet roles like snowflakes and flowers. And then you're also doing these leading principal roles um, which is a great opportunity, but it's mm-hmm. a lot of stress. And so after that run, I remember being like, I think, I think that was it. Like, I think that was my last nutcracker. Mm-hmm. And I did have another round of uh, PRP injections, which is platelet rich plasma injections. So basically use your own 
blood and then put in a centrifuge and then inject it into the place that needs to reinvigorate the healing process. Mm-hmm. I did that, you know, and it was helpful, but I was just in a lot of pain and spoke with Nico, the artistic director, and, you know, we both agreed that this was something that my body was just telling me that I really needed to take a step back and not just in terms of maybe then I can dance again, but maybe then I can live the rest of my life in a pain-free way. Because I really do think I was kind of bumping up on threatening the quality of the rest of my life at that point. Oh, sure. So, cause it had been three years, right. That I was right. just uh, repressing this mm-hmm. and pushing it. So, so that's, that was uh, in, that was about 18 months ago. Well, actually, probably a year ago in February was when I made that decision. And I was still, and I finished out the season with the company. And I was very fortunate. I had a lot of support from artistic staff in finishing it in a way that was possible for me because I was not going back on stage in pain. And so that meant doing a much lighter performance schedule, but still being able to be on stage and dance and feel good. Mm-hmm. And for that, I'm very thankful. So I did have a nice exit. I think one of the last things I performed was Swan Lake and then a world premiere that Yuri Yanowski performed or choreographed. That was just incredible. It was a contemporary ballet and I've always loved the contemporary stuff. Mm-hmm. So I, I got to finish that way and it's been great. And I, and I retired and it ended up being 150% the right decision, but it doesn't make it an easy decision. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm curious to hear more about, I guess, how, how you were feeling at that time and, and mostly in regards to looking at your future. Because I know in, in my own artistic career, I had never envisioned a world beyond what I had studied in the arts. So I, um, up until suddenly my career ended, I, I never thought of myself anything else than just being a, a, a designer. And I hear this a lot also from other artists and other other you know positions. In your world, were you thinking beyond ballet at any point up until your career was done? So yeah, it's speaking about a life after ballet mm-hmm. is speaking about a life after death, and I don't believe in that or adhere to that personally. But that's the that's the mentality within the ballet world. Mm-hmm. So it's very difficult to speak with your peers or speak with your mentors about what you're going to do once you're done dancing, unless you're going to be a choreographer or a teacher or a ballet master or mistress or an artistic director, right? Um, that being said, I was very fortunate because I had this very robust social network. So I had all these people in food. I had all these people in PR. I had people in other artistic organizations that I'd connected and collaborated with. Mm-hmm. So I had always been curious about what would come next. I didn't think I would retire so soon, so early. I thought I would be dancing much longer. So it was really hard to kind of step back and take stock of what I had and figure out what on earth I'm going to do mm-hmm. next. Uh, I was very lucky or, you know, not lucky. I worked, worked really hard for this, but I had been pursuing my undergraduate education all throughout my career. Mm-hmm. And when I retired, I also graduated with my degree. Uh, and I majored in political science and because, you know, the law and governance and all that has been very fascinating to me. So mm-hmm. I did uh, leave. I did retire with a degree. And so I didn't have to go back to college. Most of the time when you retire from the ballet, you and you wanted something else, you have to go get your undergrad degree. But I'd already done that, so at least that was saving that time. But Mm -hmm. in the same, or on the flip side, even though I didn't have to go back to college, I didn't have a clear next step. Mm -hmm. And I lacked a structure. Uh, There is not much in terms of transition support for dancers. And there aren't, there isn't adequate partnership with organizations or companies for internship opportunities. So you can kind of try out different things. So what I ended up doing when I retired, I took the whole summer off. We finished our season at the end of May. And 
And so I went traveling for the whole summer because mm-hmm. I finally, for the first time in my life, I have more than like a week where I can really go. And I, and I felt it would be stimulating and good for me not to be in Boston where everyone knows me as Rachel, the dancer mm-hmm. immediately. Right. So, so I spent the whole summer traveling and had an amazing time and it was great. And I was feeling so free and positive and wonderful. And it was like this honeymoon phase of that breakup. Right. Mm-hmm. And then came back to Boston in the middle of August and it was like coming back to the apartment that you shared with your partner after you've broken up and everything's still there, but that person isn't there. And you don't know who you are, what you're doing, what you need. So that was a huge, that was a big uh, crash landing when I came back from my travels. And, but what the one thing that I realized very quickly was that I needed some kind of structure that I couldn't just be floating around doing odd odd jobs and projects and whimsical, whatever. And so as a result of that, I, (laughs) I, it's so funny. I ended up ultimately working at Harvard, which is my day job, Mm -hmm. uh, and interviewing at a bunch of different, very high profile, big brand name institutions. uh, Because the other thing I realized was that I needed some kind of, cachet on my resume that wasn't just Boston Ballet. Mm-hmm. Something that would resonate with people and show that I can also be highly functioning in this quote unquote normal regular world. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And so I'm in fundraising at Harvard. So I was able to leverage my experience in development with the young professionals and uh, now work at work at Harvard in fundraising. Oh, great. Did you find that that was a hard sell? initially because um again in my own experience with that transitioning from a background of just the arts to then a more traditional role in a corporation or company you sometimes have to fill in the gaps for people because it doesn't always seem obvious to them even though it's obvious to you how did you how did you approach that situation and and were you working with people um, like who helped you on your resume or some more traditional you know business type of things that um, are not as obvious to someone who works in the arts? Yeah, that's a great question. I experienced different things depending on who I was talking about or talking to. Mm-hmm. Very frustratingly, the recruiters had the hardest time with me. And I would go to these recruiters and they would be like, oh, we're so excited to work with you. Um, you know, my mother was a musician, so I love the arts. And I'm like, great, that's perfect. And they'd be like, well, you don't have any office experience, so... Um, there's this secretary job here or, and you know, I'm like, listen, (laughs) we have to do better than this. Like, um, and so that was very frustrating. I, when I was actually, you know, my resume ended up getting picked up quite a lot because it is so unique. I think Mm -hmm. especially in some of these higher education spaces, a lot of people thought, it was very interesting and kind of just, I think maybe just more for curiosity. We're like, <laughs> should we call her in? <laughs> um, but I will say kudos to Harvard because they, for all intents and purposes are the most, uh, you know, hierarchical, like organized to your typical big machine. Mm-hmm. And they hired me. And, uh, you know, I think, I think they were able to see some of the things that had made me a successful dancer being useful within their own institution. And I do remember in, in some interview processes with other institutions, they would all be like, you know, your resume is so uh, interesting and so impressive, but you know, we don't um, dance here. So, <laughs> and I would just be like, yeah, I don't know. Maybe you think you don't dance, but like everyone's really, you know, dancing somewhat. They just don't know it. Um, but, but Harvard, yeah, Harvard was very interested in, in some of the skill sets that you might develop as a dancer in terms of working in a team and taking on a a leadership role when, when the time is, is right or when the circumstance arises. And also a lot of the experience I had in development as well. Mm -hmm. Oh, good. So, you're working at, at Harvard. 
And at what point did you decide to, again, combine your love of dance and movement and love of food to to do what you're currently doing, which is the choreography in the kitchen? Right. So the other reason, and this is important contextually, that mm-hmm. I decided to work at Harvard was because I wanted a strict nine to five that mm-hmm. would not bleed into any other aspects of my life because I knew that this was going to be a year of continued transition. And I wanted to give myself the space to think creatively. So it was pretty early on in the year once I started at Harvard that I was speaking with a friend of mine who is the chef owner at Juliet in Seville. His name's Josh Levin. And we've been friends for a very long time. And he was like, well, you know, I think it would be really interesting if you thought about maybe giving some performance lessons to us at the restaurant. Because I think it's such a performance, and but I'm not trained as an actor or stage presence person, and you know I think maybe that could be good. And it was ironic, or you know, perfectly timed rather, because I had earlier that fall tested this um, interview series, mm-hmm. an online interview series where I would interview chefs, and one of the things I wanted to interview chefs on was their choreography in the kitchen. Uh, but I was thinking more in terms of plating and, you know, table etiquette and all this. And I hadn't necessarily thought about what I might actually be able to bring to the table to enhance mm-hmm. that. And I had always felt like, even though, you know, the, the ballet world and the restaurant world are, are seemingly so far apart, that they were, they share so many, they run along the same parallels, mm-hmm. very same timing everyone's performing when everyone else, the rest of the world is off. You walk into a theater and you're transported. You walk into a restaurant and you're transported, right? It's, it, it is a performance. And so I, I was, I thought about it more and I was like, I think that'd be great. I, I checked in with a few other people who I really respect in the industry. Uh, Garrett Harker is a big restaurateur and he, and, you know, I, I floated the idea by him and he was like, I think that would be fantastic. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, cool, done. So, <laughs> so I did I did a pilot run with Josh at Juliet mm-hmm. and I did about, I think, three sessions with them. And we played around with, you know, very basic concepts like how do you stand? Uh, how do you take what does posture even mean? Like, what does good posture look like? There are so many misconceptions out there of, you know, throwing your shoulders back and like jutting your head up. And it's, that's not right. It's arguably worse than the opposite. And Mm -hmm. we played around with some of these very basic foundations and I created a foundations training from that. And then we layer that training and take it into leveraging that, strength and sustainability through movement and lifting heavy things or bending down. And then on top of that, we layer it further and start talking about actual presence and posture and nonverbal communication. Uh, and from that pilot, I've since uh, founded an LLC, mm-hmm. which broadly is, is called choreography for business. And I've worked with, three additional restaurants clients. Um, and yeah, that was where I was earlier was um, working with, I guess my fourth client now, uh, Benedetto in Harvard square. And, and it, it's, it's been phenomenal. It's been so exciting to kind of dig deeper into something that I always knew was there mm-hmm. and to see the ways in which, not only is it relevant and helpful for them as a team building exercise, as a physical awareness exercise, as tools for elevating the experience of their customers, but also how relevant it is for their daily lives just as human beings. Mm-hmm. And it's really that component that I recognized pretty early on that has kind of inspired me to move even beyond restaurants and work with uh, corporations and salesmen and fundraisers and like anyone who's a human being. Yeah, that's great. 
So this is this is kind of fascinating because I've caught you now in kind of the the early stages of your your business. As you develop this, are you are there particular books that you're reading about you know expanding what you're doing right now or people that you're chatting with, mm-hmm. or how are you you know you've got a lot of fantastic ideas and great opportunities. How are you planning for the future and you know um, you know setting everything up so that it is a systematic kind of way that you're growing your business right now? Totally. So. Well, number one, and this was also actually, you'll love this, because that first online article that came out about mm-hmm. this that I think you saw. I did. Right? I saw, and then I contacted you, and then yeah. we met for coffee, yeah. Right. So this um, gentleman in Philadelphia, uh, Pennsylvania, he um, – also read that article and reached out to me because he has two young girls who are do- who um, are dancers, mm-hmm. and he has always found the way they learn and the way they are composed in public and the way they present to be fascinating. And he's also felt like there's a lot of untapped potential within this world of ballet that's so shrouded in mystery. And when he heard about what I was doing, he's like, "That's interesting." Mm-hmm. And he also reached out to me, and he's since become my business coach, and he does a lot of. Um, at the University of Delaware, he does a lot of presentation coaching and communications coaching at the university there. Mm-hmm. And so he's also fascinated by a lot of these concepts that I've been trying to tease out of classical ballet technique and performance technique and bring into, you know, the more traditional workplaces. And so he's been invaluable to me in terms of helping being a sounding board for ideas, guiding me throughout some of these legal processes, uh, some of the, the marketing stuff, which, you know, is still a little on the back burner for now. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, just strategy. And, and, and so that's been, we have weekly calls and it's, it's that, I don't know where I would be without that. So, <laughs> so he's been a huge asset and I have, I think my, uh, website and of course, um, the article to, uh, thank for that. Mm-hmm. And, um, the other books that I've been reading that are amazing are, of course, are you familiar with Amy Cuddy and her work? A lot of her work is highly, highly applicable to what I'm doing. And a lot of it resonates with me. And I think there's a lot that I can use from that and, you know, dig, dig a little deeper or apply in a slightly different way mm-hmm. to, to what I'm doing, um, and it, it's just, it's very helpful for me to, to read into some of the studies that have been done on this and what's really great about them and what's still being teased out within them and, and how I can kind of just pick and choose the things that I can play around with in my program. So mm-hmm. her work has been really great. Um, I also have really enjoyed just some of the mindset books. So like Carol Dweck and her, I think it's called Mindset, is all about the growth mindset versus Mm -hmm. fixed mindset. And, you know, a lot of that I think is necessary when I'm coming into a a space that has never had this kind of physical training Mm -hmm. and seeing how I can open people's minds to it in a way that is just a, a part of their journey onwards as opposed to something that we're going to do once and they'll forget about the next day. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of those social psychology books are great. I'm also starting to dig a little deeper into nonverbal communication science. So Joe Navarro and what everybody's saying, that's great. Some of the you know salesman 101 books like Daniel Pink, uh, everybody, what is that called? Everybody sells. No, to sell as human. Sorry. Oh right, yeah. To sell as human, yeah. And and so that's also you know, just great. There's there's so much stuff out there. It's mm-hmm. so much information that's right at our fingertips, and it's awesome. Mm-hmm. Have you gotten into the Robert Cialdini influence? Yeah. Influence, parts? yes. Yeah. I, mm-hmm. I so I listened to that one. That's a that's heavy. That's hefty. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's a lot in that. But yeah, I listened to that uh, on audio. Mm-hmm. 
Oh, good. That one was interesting. With, <laughs> it does a little bit, and uh, his newest one, Persuasion. I've um, I've used a lot of those techniques in in classes that I used to teach, and also like I taught some of them. Um, well, actually, so like the big one, I would have students do the because technique to see first off to get them over their fears of just asking for things, and also just to kind of just to prove to them that they could do something that they think is impossible. And it's it's hard to think that just cutting in front of a group of people in line is impossible, but oftentimes people get really, especially students, get really self-conscious about it. And so I made them all do this exercise where they cut in front of a line at Starbucks just using the word, like they couldn't give a real reason, but they had to say whatever it was, and then because which is like the trigger word, and then make up something afterward. And all of them did it. All of them survived. Nothing bad happened to any of them. And they all learned something very unique about themselves. And that, you know, it's it's like one of those things where oftentimes in this world, you have to ask for something if you want to get it. Like, you can't just kind of stay there in the wings. So, um, so yeah, it was uh, a really cool experience that they fought me on. But there's a lot of really great things in his books and in the, in the research, and it's absolutely fascinating on how certain words trigger certain emotions and and thoughts in in all of us. They're like they're so universal, it's it's bizarre. Right, right, yeah. I I haven't read Persuasion yet, but I should. Yeah, there's so much stuff. <laughs> it's 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 good, and then there's like you'll start going down the there's like there's I I've I've been on a similar trek. For years and it's just like there's just so many really cool books out there that just kind of yeah. talk about these these different techniques and things oh totally yeah yeah um so if you were chatting with somebody who was looking to transition from the dance world or even the arts what advice would you give them about the easiest way to transition to something else after a world and, and having a past in dance so I think, and this is, this is, uh, regardless as to whether or not they would have to go to college or, or not. Uh, I think unless you have a very clear idea of what you want to do, I think it's really important to try to set up short term internships or experiments in areas that you think you might be interested in. I think it's too hard to, you know, I, I don't think it's realistic to expect to end up in the place that you're meant to be in on the first try. Mm -hmm. I think it's really hard to get a full-time position somewhere and then realize within the first few months that maybe it's not really for you. And then to back out of that, it's hard to do that and not have it reflect negatively on, you know, your resume or in the narrative of your story uh, moving forwards. I think a lot of people put a lot of weight on your intention and there's nothing wrong with being like, you know, I'm just going to try this. I'm going to try this temp position here. I'm going to try this internship there. I'm, a, you know, going to take a little bit of time to really think through what it is that I liked about that, what it is that I didn't like about that, as opposed to uh, the alternative, which would be spending a lot of time in a place that doesn't really make sense. And then I would also say, like, what I ended up doing, which was going into this very, very full-time position at a very, very structured place, the reason sometimes it's also okay to make a trade off between things you need like stability and structure and a paycheck mm -hmm. and then your overall values and mission and sense of purpose. Mm -hmm. Because as an artist, you're moving away from something that was at the same time your job and your identity and your passion. And you're moving into something that's going to be disjointed for a while and I think that if you can take that pressure off of yourself and be like, you know, I'm going to go work at this um, 
you know, either like big corporation where I'm, I'm going to be just a fly on the wall or I'm going to go work at this very small boutique firm where I'll be running around doing so much stuff that I don't even know what, I, you know, there's, that's fine. And it's not going to be the most amazing. You're not going to come off stage every night and be like, that was exhilarating. Yeah. And that's okay. And you will find it again at some point, but you have to go through that exploratory process. And you also have to check in with yourself regularly mm-hmm. to be like, I'm in this space now because of all of these things it's giving me while I'm also exploring these other avenues and just to kind of never stop exploring. And once you find something interesting to go towards that mm-hmm. and, and it doesn't have to be all at once, right? You don't have to jump ship and just, cause I haven't done that. Like there are days when I really want to just, throw everything out the window and just do this choreography for business thing. And then the pragmatist in me is like, I think there will be a time when I know it's right to make that leap. And I think I'm close, but I'm, I'm not quite there yet. And I think there's a lot to be said for having some kind of footing to mm-hmm. stand on well, while you're going through this very turbulent process. Oh yeah, definitely. There was a book that came out recently and um oh it, it escapes me it's on my bookshelf but it's by an economist who teaches at university of penn and i think it's it's about creatives or creative thinking or something like that mm. but but in it and i will i will look this up and, and send you the title he talks about in his class he had the founders of warby parker and at the time it was like his business class they just pitched the idea to him he didn't think it was a good investment because oh, yeah. all yeah, like all three of them had stable jobs, and he was like, "Why would, why would I invest in a company where the founders are all going to have stable jobs?" And they all like had it lined up, and they did Warby Parker on the side. Yeah. While, yeah, while they were doing this, and it turned out that they actually, when he did more research in this, a lot of founders who do have some kind of stable career end up doing better because they're not scared they're going to lose everything. It allows them to be more open. And just take bigger risks in their business because they're not worried about the paycheck. Yeah. Well, I will let me know what that. I know that story about Warby Parker. I feel yeah. like Ferris has like interviewed the, whoever it was that said that. I, he he probably has. He's a yeah because he's he's written a couple different books. When we stop recording, I will run to my bookshelf and and grab the book. Yeah. Um, so we can do that one. But yeah, it's um and and I know in my own life in like the company I started. It made things so much easier having a day job. I was I was a professor at that time, but mm-hmm. it allowed allowed me to make other decisions much more easily because I wasn't like, well, how am I going to pay my bills if I don't do one thing or the other? So it's, I yeah, it's really nice. Yeah. yeah. The times that you come across throughout your career where where maybe you were unsure or fearful or things weren't going the way that you had had planned out how do you approach those times and how do you overcome the fear that holds you back from moving forward yeah so in my career i would say there were times definitely where you fo- i would focus so much on the role mm-hmm. or the opportunities i was getting and that would be a reflection of not only how I was doing within the company, but like myself as an artist. So I think that sometimes we shortcut our minds on a very results based mindset. Mm-hmm. I think that if you can become aware of that and instead have your focus be on the intrinsic effort that you're putting in every day and the reasons you're you're doing that, then at least it takes some of that uh, external validation mm-hmm. away. And the reason I think that, or the the reason I'm sharing that is because it, there were definitely times where I doubted, you know, if I was in the right company or uh, if if I might be having a brighter future elsewhere. And it wasn't because of my dancing, but it was because of these, these casting things that would go up every time a new ballet was, and I might not be on there. And, and, you know, the, the reason I wasn't on there just turned out that, Oh, I was going to be used in another ballet and it was impossible to, 
do both of those in one evening or, right. or any other, if they're trying to give opportunities to other dancers because it's a big company, you know, you, you end up reading into things that don't exist. Sometimes they, they do. Sometimes there are reasons and sometimes you do need to move on. But if on the daily you are not gauging your success or where you are in life on these external, very subjective factors, then I think mm-hmm. you'll do yourself a huge favor. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other thing is I also just was very fortunate in my career. So when I was, when I was very healthy, I, I was given many opportunities and felt really great and never really doubted my place in Boston, like fully beyond a few little like glitches here and there. But, yeah. but being injured, that was, that was the biggest thing. That was the biggest challenge for me because obviously it did end up, uh, ending my career on stage. And, and I do think that, I do think that, um, I probably could have given myself a little more time earlier on to really try to heal myself and saved myself a lot of agony and pain and frustration mm-hmm. either as opposed to pushing through it because I was so afraid that people would think that I was like a wimp or not well suited for this, which obviously all ended up totally backfiring, you know, but it's <laughs> yeah. like listening to your body and knowing that at the end of the day, that's the most important thing because you can go and take your art pretty much wherever you want. Mm-hmm. But you, if you can't do your art because you've self-sabotaged yourself, like you can't do it anywhere. Yeah. So I'm, I'm curious cause I forgot to ask this question before why. So it seems like a more easy an easier transition. And a lot of artists do this that go from being a performer to a choreographer artistic director or to work another maybe a more administrative position within the ballet or other ballets Mm -hmm. which which may have have been an easier transition why did you decide to not to do do that and kind of go away from that that kind of idea yeah so i felt like the ballet world was always very isolating um and i definitely actually for a while really wanted to be an executive Mm-hmm. for a ballet company because I was like, there are so many things that could be done better than what's being done right now. And, um, but I also really felt like there was just so much value inside the ballet world that wasn't being appreciated within the ballet world mm-hmm. and was also not being shared with the broader community. And I didn't want to be, um, I didn't want to spend more time in a world where, you know, you're the greatest asset in the ballet world when you're a dancer. Mm-hmm. And I definitely did not want to go from being one of the institution's greatest assets to not, um, to, and, and that's not saying anything about, like, again, I've always believed in the holistic machine. But just for myself, in terms of the transition, I was like, I can't just kind of show, I can't stay in that world. I have to have a broader perspective. If I am like, and I still would love to return to the ballet world in a greater capacity, but the only way I'm going to come back and add the value that I think the institution needs is if I can take some space, gain some perspective, Mm -hmm. then return with new knowledge and and still always have that background and the vocabulary and the innate kind of understanding of what goes on and has to go on in order for a ballet company to be premier. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can see that. In your travels, what trip uh, or place that you visited or experienced you had while you were there had the most positive impact on your life? Hmm. I don't know. I love traveling. It's the best. Uh, mm-hmm. Definitely when I traveled by myself for the summer when I retired, that was an amazing trip. I spent a lot of time 
with family. I spent a lot of time writing very much off the radar Mm -hmm. and it was great. And I definitely felt very at peace when I was traveling and felt like I had time and wanted to give myself time. And unfortunately coming back to Boston, like I definitely lost a bit of that perspective, but it's still there. Mm -hmm. Um, And then actually, you know, this past weekend I was in Guadalupe. Wow. Yeah. For a yoga retreat. Mm -hmm. And I think that that trip came at the perfect time, like right at the beginning of this new year. Mm -hmm. I feel like I have a solid foundation underneath me. I was able to be like very open and like listen to, you know, other people listen to the island. I, I, it was very powerful for me. Uh, not, not just in terms of, uh, you know, where I'm going next, but just as like a person and, and, you know, it was my first yoga retreat mm-hmm. and I've always been, I actually just wrote about it on my web, on my blog, but, um, I've always been terrified of these yoga retreats, right? Like, it's, well, it just, sometimes it feels so contrived to me. Mm-hmm. These people go on these yoga retreats and, um, we're not we're just people in general go on on yoga retreats and it, everything's in silence and you know you're eating vegetarian meals and chanting you know and I'm just like what like, what this is cra- like this is crazy but the reason I went on this yoga retreat was because the yoga teacher who was leading mm-hmm. the retreat I have taken her class in New York and she is just so incredible. You take a yoga class with her and it's like she knows. It's like she's been, I think she's had a really interesting life. I think she's lived a lot. I think she's been through a lot. I think she's loved. I think she's lost, you know. And so when she talks about this stuff, it's not from a book she's read or studied. It's from like herself. And so she has, her work has always resonated with me. And when I found out she was leading this trip, I was like, you know what, if I'm going to go on any yoga retreat, it's going to be one led by her. And it ended up being this incredible adventure. Mm-hmm. Like it, we were just gallivanting around islands, the islands, and and it was um, fantastic. And it was a very small group too. Oh, wonderful! Perfect. So that, yeah, I think, and it's yeah, it's funny timing, but it was just last weekend, and I feel mm-hmm. like it's been it's been really helpful. I learned a lot. Oh, good. So with everything that you've done and everything that you have experienced. What would you say is the best advice you've ever received? Still a hard question. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the best advice I've ever received. I think, oh, man, you know, it's the hardest thing, but to just be, to be patient. So we're talking like advice like best advice, but not necessarily advice you've been able to super follow, right? Because. Yeah. I mean, you know, whether or not it is something you've taken to heart and, and fully experienced is another thing, but you know, something, yeah, I would say, yeah. It, advice that you've been told that, you know, you're working on right now, perhaps. Yeah. 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 yeah it's to be, it's to be patient <laughs> to connect with, I'm just, I, you know, I want everything to happen yesterday. Yeah. So to be patient, to take the time to ask yourself what you like to do and either what brings you joy or if that's a hard question to answer, when was the last time you felt joy and what were you doing? And either have that be a part of your daily, weekly experience Mm-hmm. Or have it be something you can grow more on. Mm-hmm. Um, I think those are two of the things that people have said to me many times. And um, I think they're very true. I think they're very hard to do. Um, and then finally, also just like not caring what other people think. <laughs> just not caring what other people think. Mm-hmm. You spend so much time thinking that other people are just plotting against you and they're not, they don't have time. Mm -hmm. People might judge, but people do not have time to be preoccupied with what you're doing. Like they don't. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Well, that's great. Um, 
thank you so much, Rachel, for taking the time to chat with me. I really appreciate your time. If the listeners would like to find more about what you're working on and, and read your blog, what is the best place they can find all things about you? Yeah, so I uh, my website is Rachel on point with an E at the end. Dot. Mm-hmm. And my Instagram handle is at Rachel on point. My Instagram tends to be the most active. I'm not writing as much these days. I will be launching a new website, you know, within the foreseeable future that will have all of my new business stuff on it, but that will be announced. Uh, so I would say, yeah, definitely follow me on Instagram and check out my website just for, for some of the adventures I've documented and perfect delicious photos of food you'll be really hungry excellent well i i do follow you on instagram and yes there are tons of food photographs and i Mm -hmm. i i don't like a lot of food bloggers but i do like your your stuff oh my gosh quite good Uh, really oh (laughs) no it's so true though so many oh man it drives me crazy so many of these food instagrammers have so many followers Mm -hmm. but they post just literally just pictures of food porn like you would die if you ate all that food because it's, like, it's pasta on pizza. And I'm like, why? Right. That's Just to try it. Yeah. Like, God, anyway, so I totally hear you. I follow them all and like all their pictures, but I'm like, yeah. uh. <laughs> well, awesome. This has been a fantastic conversation. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Oh my gosh. I had the best time. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Advance Your Art Podcast. If you liked this episode, please go into iTunes and give us a five-star rating. And while you're there, hit the subscribe button so that every single time I release a new episode, it will go directly to you without even thinking about it. If you're interested in hearing older episodes, please go to advanceyourart.com where you can find the catalog of everything I've done so far, as well as contact information and projects I'm working on. Thank you again, and have a great day.